why we do message notes. Uh, more is retained as you listen and you jot down little notes than just simply listening. You know, a lot of information goes in one ear and out the other, right? So we also want to encourage you to bring these uh, to your community group where uh, it's sermon-based, you talk about the message, and um, just a, a great time to catch up, build friendships, and grow in your walk with Jesus and talk about the message. All right, here we go, Gospel of John. We are walking through this book one verse at a time, and uh, today we're going to be in John chapter 1, um, verses 35 to 51. So if you have a copy of God's Word, uh, pull it out, turn to John chapter 1. Um, let me just remind you of the purpose of John's gospel, which I've highlighted a few different times. Um, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John lays out for us his grand purpose, the purpose of his book. John calls miracles signs. Actually, the signs are the miracles. And he records seven of them in his gospel. The miracles, ultimately, they point to his deity. Each sign, we're going to look at all seven of them, each sign illustrates some aspect of his deity. So when he says, you know, but these are written, he's getting ready to give us the reason why, right? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So every verse, every chapter, every story, we need to see all of that through the lens of his purpose. John wants us, as we encounter his gospel, as we read about the life and ministry and ultimately the, the death and resurrection of Christ, he wants us to encounter the living word. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He wants faith to be awakened within us. John clearly declares in his gospel that Jesus is the Son of God. Now this is not just some declaration. He wants us to do something with it, right? This is not just for knowledge's sake. He, 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 he wants us to, to move to action, apply knowledge to our lives. He wants us to believe in Jesus, the word believe is the word for faith, but it's more than intellectual assent. Belief or faith means to trust. It means to rely on. Are you relying on Christ? Are you relying on him for eternal life? Are you relying on him for you to be right with God? Are you relying on Christ and, and his sacrifice for payment for your sins? Are you relying on him for the hope of eternity? John gives us seven signs, seven miracles that point us to the deity of Christ. It points us to who Christ is, his identity, that he's God wrapped in human flesh. And then, I haven't really touched on this, but I want to just introductory real quick. John gives us seven witnesses to the deity of Christ. So throughout the Gospel of John, he gives us seven signs, Seven, like, main events, miracles. And then he gives us seven witnesses. Seven people in the book that are going to have an encounter with Christ. And they're going to simply declare, based on the encounter, Jesus, you are indeed the Son of God. The number seven in the Bible 
stands for perfection. So seven witnesses, the first one is John the Baptist. And we looked at John the Baptist last week. And then the others are Nathaniel, Peter, Martha, Thomas, John himself, the writer, and Jesus himself. So we looked at John the Baptist, his testimony. He was a witness to Jesus, uh, his identity, his mission, his purpose. Uh, we're also going to see today the second witness, which is Nathaniel. And Nathaniel has this encounter with Christ, and he bows the knee, and he surrenders his life to Jesus. John the Baptist is the first witness. We saw this last week, and he declares in verse 34 of John 1, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John is, is using these witnesses, just one after the other, to reinforce the main theme. And that main theme is Jesus is the Son of God. Day one, we looked at this last week, the priests and Levites come from Jerusalem. They're sent from the Pharisees, and they're asking John the Baptist, who are you? Are you the Christ? And John the Baptist says, no, I'm not the Christ. Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And then day two, based on the context, we know that John is declaring most likely to a crowd of people, and based on his language, most likely Jesus was in the crowd that day, and they were unaware that Jesus, who was present, was the Messiah, the anointed one, the Son of God. And so what does John do? He declares, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so now we come to day three. Day three, based on the context, the first few words of John 1, verse 35, gives us the context. It says, the next day again... John, so John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Here's point number one if you're taking notes. Go verbal with the good news. Go verbal with the good news. John, he's with his two disciples, and the story tells us that Jesus walks by. We know that the day before, you know, he was in the crowd. John the Baptist makes a declaration about him. Now the next day he walks by, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God. There's two disciples that are following John. One is Andrew, which we know it's Andrew because we're going to read in a few verses later that Andrew uh, leaves and follows Jesus, goes to get his brother Simon. Most likely the other disciple who remains nameless is most likely John, the writer of the gospel. Why do we know this? Number one, he never identifies himself in the book. He never identifies himself. Number two, there's no record of John. When he started following Christ. So you have these two disciples that are following John the Baptist. We know that John the Baptist, forerunner, right? He came to prepare the way for the Messiah. And the two disciples leave John and they start to follow Jesus. And then you're going to see in a moment that one of the disciples, Andrew, after he has left John, started following Jesus, what does he do? He goes and gets his brother. He goes and gets Simon. Now the question is, how did it all start? How did it all start? Someone was pointing people 
to Jesus. This is what John the Baptist was doing. He was pointing people to Christ. Someone went verbal. I want you to see the trickle-down effect. John the Baptist forerunner. He has these disciples, right? They leave. They follow Christ. Andrew, he has a brother named Simon. He goes and gets his brother. You're going to see later uh, in, a, in the following passages, in, in the following story, that Philip encounters Christ. What does he do? He goes and gets his buddy. He goes and gets his friend Nathaniel. And, and the Bible says that their lives were radically changed. Their lives were wrecked by the grace of God. Family trees were forever transformed because they started following Jesus. Maybe you're the first person in your family that has placed faith in Christ. Maybe there isn't a heritage of faith. Maybe there's not like a spiritual generation of of faith. Grandparents or great-grandparents or parents never passed the baton of faith to you. Here's the deal. Here's the good news. If you're number one, uno number one, if you're the first person in your family that's come to Christ, guess what? You can leave a generational legacy of faith to your kids, to your grandkids. Don't underestimate what God can do in your life. And if, and if you don't have kids of your own, this is, this is the beauty of the gospel. You can have spiritual kids. There can be people that are connected to you, kids, teenagers, adults, and you are influencing and you are shaping and you're passing the baton of faith down to them. Right? There's this trickle-down effect. People start following Christ. Their lives are changed. When you meet Christ, your life is never the same. Check this out. John the Baptist, this is what I love about this dude. This guy. John the Baptist was so bold. I mean, he just called people out, right? He didn't mince any words. He was a man of conviction, right? I, you know, I, I said last week, I pictured John as like this burly, hairy dude. You know, if you picture John as like this skinny dude, that's on you, man. But don't mess up my portrait, right? John the Baptist, big dude. I think he just got real chesty with people and he was just, he was loud, he was in charge, but yet he was so humble. He was so strong and yet he was so tender spiritually and he knew his role. He knew his role. This is what blows my mind about his ministry. John the Baptist was pointing people to Jesus, right? You got to go verbal. It's not enough. I've, been, I've, I've highlighted this once or twice over the last month. It is not enough to just live a good moral life in front of people. It's not enough. It is not enough. Because listen... The reason it's not enough is because there's a lot of other people that don't know Jesus that live good moral lives. And they can probably outlive you on the moral front. They're doing pretty good, right? And we can start naming names, but we don't have time for that. So, so we got to move beyond the comfort zone. Listen to me. Listen to me. We have to move beyond the comfort zone. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to myself here, but I, could, I'm not, I, I can't mention something like this unless I am allowing God to move me out of the comfort zone. you got to take opportunities, whether it's with a car mechanic or a landscaper 
or a neighbor or the person, the UPS guy, or the person who cut your hair. you got to take opportunities to talk to them about Jesus. Engage in a spiritual conversation. We're going to talk about that in a moment, so I don't want to go too far. But here's what I love about John the Baptist. He points people to Jesus, and you know what he does? He fades into the background. I love that. He just fades into the background. It's about Jesus. It's not about him. Here's the deal. we got to be like John the Baptist. we got to be about sharing the gospel and asking God to open doors of opportunities. That's what, that's what Paul prayed when he was in prison. You know, he was telling the church of Colossae, right? Pray for me. Pray for doors of opportunity, right? So God calls us to make two commitments. Number one, commitment to personal growth, and that's discipleship, right? When you get saved, God expects you to grow, right? He, he wants you to grow. He wants you to mature. It's called sanctification. That this, it's a process where God begins to work in your life day by day, week by week, month by month, year after year after year, and he's not done working on you until you get to heaven. You're welcome. Doesn't that that sound great? He's not done working on you until you go to heaven. He wants wants you to mature in Christ. He wants you to be Christ-like. There are no mature Christians. There are no mature Christians. There, there There are no mature pastors. There are only maturing Christians maturing followers of Jesus, right? Like I've said, saved in a moment, sanctified over a lifetime. You encounter Christ, your life is radically changed. But then the rest of your life, it's this lifelong pursuit to follow Christ and get to know him. Here's the second commitment, commitment to personal mission, and that is evangelism. Our personal mission which is sharing the good news with people, is fueled by a personal growth. It is fueled by a personal growth. Out of this growth, out of our time with Jesus, out of our love for him, it will drive us to have a desire to tell people about Christ. Evangelism simply means sharing the good news. I like one person's definition of evangelism. It is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Isn't that good? That's evangelism. And you know what? We were all there before. We were all spiritual beggars. There was nothing in our hands. We were destitute. We were broken. We were on the streets. There was no hope. There was nothing, right? And there was nothing in our hands that we could bring to God. There was nothing that could ultimately satisfy us. This is what Jesus does. When you come to Christ, he's the bread of life. He satisfies you. Satisfaction is guaranteed with Christ when you come to him. You know, evangelism without discipleship lacks power. Like if you're, if you're sharing the gospel, but you're not living the gospel, or you're like living in hypocrisy, that means you lack power. Let me say it this way. You lack credibility. As believers, listen. We are fallen, we are broken, we've got junk in our life, we're, we're working on things. I've got some things in my life that I'm working on. We all got stuff we're working on, right? We're a work in progress. There's no perfection, but our, our lifestyle, which is visible, should match our lip service when it comes to talking about Christ. If those things don't match up, people are going to be like, you're a hypocrite, you're, you're a complete hypocrite. I'm not talking about little failures or sins. I'm talking about willful, open 
sin that you're not willing to address. And people see that, but yet you talk about Christ, Christ changed my life. Those two things don't match up. Um, discipleship without evangelism lacks purpose. So if you're just, if you're just in it to grow and grow and grow and grow, that's like, that's like someone, like you ever watched the show Hoarders? Oh my goodness. I just want to get a trash bag and get rid of all their stuff, right? Sometimes discipleship can be like the show hoarders. You just hoard, 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 accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. You're just taking in. It's like the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea takes everything in from the Jordan River. It's dead. It's lifeless. The Sea of Galilee, it's fresh water. It's teeming with fish. It's beautiful. It's vibrant, right? Because it has, it receives and it, and it, there's an outlet that goes into the Jordan River that flows into the Dead Sea. We need to be like Sea of Galilee, right? Not Dead Sea. The Dead Sea, is just, it's, it takes in. So we have to be about, yes, growing in Christ, but also being about the mission. And, and that gives purpose, right? That's God's given assignment. I like to say it this way, show and share. Show and share. Um, show is living out your faith, right? Sharing is sharing the good news, Evangelism and discipleship is not a program. Discipleship is a relationship, surrender. It involves sacrifice. It, it, it involves fighting sin, battling sin. It, it involves saying yes to Jesus, denying self, taking up cross. Evangelism is about investing. It's not a program, right? You as a believer of Jesus, you have a mission because the church has a mission. You know, and our prayer should be, God, what can you do in and through me? What can you do in and through me? Whether you're in the military, whether you're a homemaker, whether you're in corporate America, whether you're retired and you're enjoying retirement, you're, you're loving your grandkids and your kids, what can God do in and through you? You know, when my daughter, when she was really little, I mean, just like really, really little, I got to stress that, when she was really, really little, she would say, Mom, What's your name again? She went, Mom, what's your name again? It was so cute, right? You know what the church, the church can do the same exact thing. Sometimes we have spiritual amnesia. God, what's your mission again? And it's like we want God to just remind us, and we need to be reminded. But we can't forget that the mission of the church is to reach the lostness of humanity. Matthew 28 says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The mission of the church is the Great Commission. But he, notice what Jesus said. The Great Commission is a co-mission. It's a partnership. He's in it with us. We're not alone. He says, I'm, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So what he's saying is, your oikos, your 8 to 15 people, your circle of influence, the people that God has put on your front step of your door, door of your life, or he's put them on the front row of your life, those people, those people can be reached with his love. Jesus is saying this mission is doable. It's doable because I'm working with you. And so one of my favorite passages, one of my favorite stories is in Mark chapter 5, Mark chapter 5, when Jesus encountered the demoniac, this guy who was demon-possessed, 
I mean, he was so messed up. He was ostracized from family, friends, village. He was living in a cemetery. He would cry out. He would, he would hurt himself. He was tortured by darkness. And Jesus showed up, and they had this encounter, and Jesus basically <laughs> healed him. I mean, the, the demons left him. There's a whole story connected to that. I don't have time. But the one thing that I, that I stand amazed about is, is this man wanted to go with Jesus. It was like his life was completely wrecked, and he's like, I want to follow you. I want to be with you, right? And what did Jesus say? He said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Your translation might say uh, people instead of friends. Go home to your people. Go home to your friends, right? The Greek word home, go home to your friends or go home to your, to your people is the word oikos. It, it's, it means extended household. That is your assignment, you have a people. I have a people. I can't reach your people, and you can't reach mine. Now, I have noticed over the years, being here 14 years, I've noticed that sometimes multiple people, they're connected to the same person. And sometimes they don't even know it. And I'm like, wow, how amazing is that? In the web of relationships, God's using multiple people to bring truth to someone. We all have a people. God uses people, right? Notice in verse 39 of John 1, um, John, the gospel writer, says it was about the 10th hour. So Jewish time, 4 p.m., Roman time, 10 a.m., most likely was 4 p.m. because John was, was Jewish, he's Hebrew. John, is a, he's, he's an old man when he's writing this gospel. And here's the amazing thing. He remembers the exact time when he found Christ. He puts it in the story. At 4 p.m., the 10th hour, I remember encountering Christ. Now, here's the deal. Most of us are not going to be able to pinpoint a date or a, a date on a calendar or maybe even a speci specifically a day whether Monday or Friday or Wednesday, that's when I came to Christ. But let me say this. There has to be a moment in your life you remember that is when I became a follower of Christ. That's when I followed him. That's when I believed in him. Here's the thing. Christianity is not something you grow into. It's not something you're even born into. Look at, um, look at um, John... John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of man, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So, those who receive Christ become children of God. They become a part of the family of God. The passage, the passage says, uh, those who were born... That's a reference to the born-again experience. What does it mean to be born again? You're born once physically. You're born, uh, you're, you're born once spiritually. It literally means to be born again, like born from above. Um, it, 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 to be remade. That's what it means, to be born spiritually. right? To be made alive in Christ. It's the work of God in your life. But notice the, the three negatives. 
This is not of blood. So this is not of racial or ethnic heritage. This is not the will of the flesh, right? You're, you're forcing the issue. This is not the will of man. Some man-made system, something you concocted, right? There's plenty of religious systems. It says you were born not of these things, blood, flesh, will of man, but of God. The new birth experience is something that it's God's doing. Are you involved? Do you have a choice? Sure, I believe that. It's a mystery. It's paradox how that works. But it's God who draws, he convicts, he saves, he transforms our life. And by faith, we embrace Christ. This, and it's truly a gift. God allows us to respond to his offer of grace. So let's back up. Let's go back to the story. John chapter 1, verses 40 to 42. It says, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Here's point number two. Bring your oikos to Jesus. Or you could put it, fill in the blank, bring your family to Jesus. You know, Andrew was an ordinary disciple. There was nothing spectacular about him. Most people, um, most people that Jesus encountered were ordinary. They were average. Someone has said, God must have loved the ordinary people because he made so many of them, right? Andrew plays a secondary role. Did you notice the text? It says, Andrew, comma, Simon Peter's brother. He's known for being Peter's brother. His identity is connected to his brother. Andrew is in the shadows. Peter's in the limelight. Peter is well known. I mean, Peter was bold, brash, outspoken, impetuous, always just putting his foot in his mouth, you know, initiating things. Peter was the one who walked on water. He was the first one to recognize Jesus as son of God. He's, he's the one who ran to the tomb. He preached on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people got saved. He was the leader of the pack. He wrote two books in the New Testament. Peter gets all this limelight. Andrew, not so much. He doesn't get much press. But here's the encouragement. The encouragement is it dispels the myth that you have to be gifted or well-known to be used by God. There's three stories of Andrew in the Gospels. And guess what? Every single story. You know what he's doing? He's bringing people to Jesus. John chapter 1, he goes and he brings his brother. The second story, Jesus has been ministering to the crowds of multitudes, and there's 5,000 people, not counting women and children. So we're talking like 15, 20,000 people. Sometimes people fail to see that. Oh, he fed 5,000. No, he fed like 15, 20,000 people on one occasion. And, and what happened? Andrew knew that there was like a, uh, a food shortage problem. And what did he do? He went to, he found a little boy with a sack lunch and he brings this boy to Jesus. Third story. There were Greeks that he basically brought the Greeks to Jesus. It was not just Jewish people that were believing in Christ. Andrew was used by God. He played a vital role in bringing a different ethnic group to Jesus. 
Andrew was always bringing people to Christ. Notice the text. It uses the word first. He first found his brother, and then notice the next sentence. He brought him to Jesus. When Andrew's life, when he encountered Christ, what did he do? First things matter, right? He was intentional. Urgency, right? He went and he got his brother, right? He didn't get preoccupied doing other things. He went and found his brother. And he said, listen, we have found the Christ. We have found the Messiah, the anointed one. And it says that he brought him to Jesus. As believers, we could do a better job going first, like intentionality, urgency, going to people. Here's my encouragement. Bring people. Give an invite. Bring people to church. Right? You do the invitation, and then let me teach God's word. Right? And allow the Holy Spirit to do a work in their life. Here's what I found. The gospel always spreads in relationships. It always spreads in Now, I shouldn't say always, most of the time. Because we're going to see in a moment that it didn't with Philip. But I believe that when you are found by Christ, you become a finder for Christ. Found people, find people. When you have experienced Christ and he's changed your life, you're going to tell people about him. Um, Andrew brings Peter, and it says that Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which means, which means Peter. So the Greek word for Peter is Petros, which literally means rock. Was Peter a rock? Was he solid? Was he unshakable? Did he demonstrate that in his life? No, he didn't. He crumbled. He was always crumbling, right? He was always crumbling. But here's, here's the powerful thing. Jesus sees Simon's heart, but he also sees what Peter could do in the future. He saw his possibilities, right? And even though Peter made a mess of things and he denied Jesus on, on three, different, three different times, right? God, Jesus, would transform him into what he would want, into, into what, um, into what he, he wants him to become. And, and that's what God does in our lives. I think sometimes we could be so stuck in the past. We could be stuck in our sin. We could be stuck in past mistakes. And God is like saying, listen, your identity is in me. I'm giving you a new name, a new identity. I got a future. I got a, I got a plan for you. And so just, just a beautiful thing there. Um, we, we see how God raises up a leader and he completely changed his life. Look at verse 43 to 44. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, uh, Bethsaida the city of Andrew and Peter. Look at, uh, real quick. So Philip, Andrew, and Peter grew up in the same town. You know, I like to think maybe they were like, Childhood friends, you know. There was a relationship there. And then three of them become disciples um, of Christ. Look at verse 45 to 49. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, second witness, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Here's point number three. Never give up on people. Philip finds Nathanael. And he says, we have found the Messiah. We have found the one that Moses and the prophets have, have talked about. And what did Nathanael say? He said, Philip, come on, man. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, he probably had a pretty good handle of the Old Testament because there was prophecies in the Old Testament. Uh, there was at least one specific prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Well, Nazareth is, is a different city, right? Nazareth was a hick town. It was a, a podunk town. It was insignificant in, in the eyes of most people. It wasn't like Bethlehem, and it definitely wasn't like Jerusalem. So Nathaniel's like, can anything good? I mean, nothing good comes from Nazareth. Come on, man. And what did Philip say? He said three powerful words. And there's a lot of application here. He said, come and see. I think there's two approaches that we need to embrace. And, and they both start with three words. Well, not start, they, they are three words. Go and tell, come and see. Go and tell is verbal. It's proclamation. We have to go. We got to be verbal. We got to share the gospel. We got to be like John the Baptist. But then we got to take the approach of Philip. Come and see. I think sometimes, and I shared this in the first service, I think sometimes we, in our, in our, in our brain, we feel like in order to effectively share the gospel, it has to be this logical step-by-step, -step, maybe even bullet points, sub-points of the gospel. And, and I got to just share all of it without any sort of conversation, any questions, without any back and forth. And if I just get through this, boom. If I just lay it on them, bam, share the gospel, done. Right, did it, right? Philip, here's what Philip is not doing. Philip is not arguing Nathaniel into the kingdom. Philip is not, he's not getting ready to share a dissertation to Nathaniel why Jesus is the Messiah. He just simply puts it out there. Come and see for yourself, Nathaniel, because I've met him. And I believe that this, this is the Messiah. This is, there's so much application here. I, don't get me wrong, the logical package deal that's helpful because if you can kind of get in your brain, get in your heart, then it can come out sometimes easier. But I think we need to be like Jesus and have conversational evangelism with people. This is what Philip's doing with Nathaniel. He's basically saying, hey, Nathaniel, come and explore. Come and explore. Right? I think Christianity is worth exploring. There's a lot, there's a plethora of world religions, religious systems, and I have found that Christianity answers the most fundamental questions connected to life. 
all the questions. Is there a God? You know, how did we get here? What's the purpose of life? Is there truth? Is there right? Is there wrong? Right? What's the meaning of life? Is there life beyond the grave? I think Christianity answers the most basic questions of life. And so we need to be about that. Hey, come and see. Give out a book. Hey, come explore Christianity. Give an invite, right? There's so many different ways we can do that. And so I think we, we, we can better take the approach um, of Philip. You know, back in the day, I was reading an article um, recently um, by Tim Keller about the front porch and how back in the day, you know, homes had a front porch. Why did they have a front porch? Because it was community, right? It was like neighbors knew neighbors. People would sit on the porch and they would drink some lemonade or some sweet tea or your favorite beverage, whatever that is. My son works at Chick-fil-A, so it's beverage, not, not, not a Coke. So, okay, thank you. Appreciate it. No laugh. Whatever. So, so, like, that's what they did. They just hung out. But they had conversations. They knew each other. Now today, it's like we don't want to know our neighbors. We, we don't have time for our neighbors. It's like we're going we're gonna to shut the garage door quickly, get the car in. We're going to get to the door. and we, we don't take time for that community. And so I think there's, there's a lot there. Spend the time and um, not God, I don't believe God, I don't believe every time, never mind, I'm moving on. Uh, I'm moving on, I'm moving on, I'm moving on. Look at verses 50 and 51. I was getting tongue-tied. I was like, that's going to come out the wrong way. All right, Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. So Nathaniel was just completely blown away, right? And uh, we don't know what he was doing underneath the fig tree. We don't know if he was reading scripture. We don't know if he was engaging in some sin. We don't know if he was pondering the meaning of life. But here's what we do know. Here's what we do know. Jesus knew. Jesus knew what was going on, and he called him out. He called out the fig tree, hey, before Philip came, you know, I saw you. And Nathaniel, just that statement alone caused Nathaniel to be like, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. And so Jesus said, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Now, some people think that that verse the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man is connected to like a future prophetic, you know, event tied to the second coming. Some people say it's connected to Daniel 7. Um, Father giving the kingdom to the Son, possibly. But I do think it's a, it's, there's a direct connection back to the Old Testament, which Nathaniel would understand because he's a Hebrew, so he would understand. He's, he's read this, right? So Here's what Jesus does. I think it's a, it's a veiled reference or direct reference to an event in Genesis chapter 28. Before I read the passage real quick, let me just say this real quick. So we know that Jacob um, had a brother by the name of Esau. Parents played favorites. Um, and it really caused a lot of dysfunction in the family. Anytime you play favorites, it's a surefire way um, to create dysfunction and bitterness and anger in your home. Never show favoritism. 
It's, it's no bueno, no goody, right? And so that's what they did. So here's the deal. And we know that Jacob, you know, he was, um, he was a trickster. He was a deceiver. He was a no good, real piece of work. And he cheated his brother out of the, um, the birthright. We know eventually he cheated him out of the blessing. I mean, he, with the help of his own mama, he dressed up, got all hairy, so his dad would, when his dad touched him, he would think he's touching Esau, but he touched Jacob. Jacob was a, man, he was a trickster. Well, he goes on the run, and his whole life is just, it's a, it is, I, I did a whole series on the life of Jacob a long time ago. And um, before I actually did a series on the life of Joseph. Because rarely, ja- I mean, rarely people talk, they don't really talk about Jacob very much. He, well, he's the father of the 12 tribes. But like, Jacob, like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? Jacob's a big deal. He's on the run. Esau is angry. I'm mean, talking about sibling rivalry when one brother wants to kill the other brother. And he's on the run. We know the story with two wives and Laban. You know, Jacob, he, he thought he was good at deceiving people. He met varsity player deceiver with Laban, the dad of these girls. Um, Jacob hits a low moment, a dark moment in his life. And I want to read it to you. Genesis 28, 11 to 16. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. So Jacob has this dream. What does he see? He sees three things. He sees a stairway reaching from heaven to earth. He sees angels ascending and descending on the stairway, and he sees God above him in the dream. And this dream tops all dreams. He gets heaven. He gets the stairway access ladder. He gets angels But more importantly, he gets this vision of God. He experiences this life-changing encounter with with the Lord. And and the word that God gives Jacob is beautiful. He says, I'm the God of your grandfather Abraham. I'm the God of your father Isaac. And we know, we don't have time to look at it, but over the next 20 years, God is going to do a work in his life. And someday, just like he did a work in Peter's life, someday he's going to be the God of Jacob. Not just the God of Abraham. Not just the God of Isaac, but the God of Jacob. And God is showing Jacob, listen, I am with you. I I have always been with you. And so here's what Jesus is doing. In John 1, Jesus is giving this, I think, this reference to let Nathaniel know, hey, Nathaniel, remember the Jacob's vision and the dream, the stairway? I am Jacob's ladder. I am the connecting piece. I am the connecting piece between heaven and earth. I'm the entrance into heaven. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. I've provided a way for all mankind to know me. See, religion says, you know, it's, it, you know, you got to do something. you got to ascend to God. Islam, five pillars. Judaism, ten commandments. Buddhism, eightfold path. you got to do, you got to do, you got to do something. But here's what Jesus is saying. I'm the stairway. I'm the ladder. The stairway is not to heaven. It's from heaven. The angels are ascending and descending. The stairway is not made by man. The stairway is spiritual and it's made by God. He sent his son Jesus to bridge the gap between sinful humanity and his father in heaven. Jesus said, Nathaniel, I'm the son of God. Yes, I am the king of Israel. But I am the latter. The only one that can connect you back to the father. Let's pray.